who is sufficient. God is the one. God plus uh, nothing. It's still everything. What he desires is that we worship him and know him and are content with him. And God will teach us this lesson throughout our lives, especially when you think that you have everything that you need to live well. And God is great. And actually, actually this uh, text tells us that, Judges chapter, chapter 7, God is great and God gives himself to us. And even when we don't have anything with him, if we have him, that is enough. That is having everything. Surely, people thought what's necessary in order to win this battle are people. As they face this, this army of camels, as, as, as sand on the seashore, people thought that what we need is better technology, better weapons. But God takes all those things away and God leaves them with 300 people so that there is no mistake. So we cannot mistake uh, this having been uh, done by our own strength. God wants to make sure that he says, I am enough. I can do this. And it seems to me there is a pattern of God doing this uh, throughout the Bible. Just think about all the things that God does. When God calls Abraham... He's already old. When God promises to Abraham that, uh, that he will ha- have a son, uh, Sarah's uh, a womb is closed, it's dead. When God delivers Israelites out of Egypt, God takes them to the edge of the sea. And then God opens the sea. When, he's, um, when he wants to tear down the walls of Jericho, he has people go around the wall and blow the trumpet. When there is a giant to fight, he sends a boy to fight him. When Elijah contends with the prophets of Baal, he, 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 he says, well, uh, douse it with water. Just soak it with water so it just is impossible for anyone to actually uh, ignite it with fire. But God does that. The woman that God uh, picks to bear Jesus is a virgin. And then God picks disciples who are fishermen and tax collectors, the unlikeliest of uh, of people. When Messiah is born, the Messiah is born in a manger. And he later wears a crown of thorns. There seems to be a pattern of God doing the unlikeliest thing with unlikeliest people so that he can say, I am God. Um, I am enough. That he is mighty. And God does that in this text. When they blow out the trumpet in the middle of the night, in verse 22, and shout out for Yahweh and for Gideon. And the only way that God can, God confuses uh, the people throughout the camp and they turn on each other. The blowing of the trumpet would not have been enough. It's Yahweh God who confuses the people there. And it's Lord who does the impossible. But as I thought about this, how do we apply to this? Uh, how, how do we apply this to our lives? This is a very big question, and it's a it's a it's a very confusing question, I think, in some ways. Because what does it mean that we should be expecting God to do the impossible things in our lives? Does this mean that we should always be expecting God to do the impossible? Of course not. Because I've heard. I mean, I'm sure you have as well. And I've 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 seen. Um, I've heard. Um, 
of these uh, young Korean women, three women who drowned in the, in, in, in the river because they wanted to walk, but they thought that God had told them to walk on water. And just enough faith, if they could walk on water, but they were drowned. And there are numerous people who have been bitten by a poisonous snake and died. It's not that long ago that we've seen the report of a young girl who died because her parents refused to take, them, take her to the hospital because they were convinced that God would heal her. I think one of the main problems of thinking like that is that we, th- we have this worldview that separates what is normal, what is sort of normal, and what is spiritual. What's miraculous, we say, that's spiritual. That's God at work. And we forget that God has made us, uh, us, our spiritual beings, to live in our bodies, that we're physical beings as well, that we are meant to live in this world. Our bodies and minds are arenas in which the Spirit of God works. Jesus becomes a human being, and he lives and he grows. And I'm very much encouraged by the fact that actually, probably when Jesus went to the temple and read all those things that are written on in the Old Testament, he learned mission, his mission about himself that he was growing in his knowledge of himself as he was growing up. It wasn't some sort of magical, spiritual uh, thing that was downloaded into his brain because Jesus was God. It wasn't like that. Jesus was a fully human being. God was working in his mind. And we have to have this worldview of God being with us in everything. So the Holy Spirit is not only at work when I speak, on Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit is at work when I prepare this sermon. When I go home and actually do the textual work, underlining and, and looking through the text in details, when I um, think about it, when I pray over it, in my, even in my reading commentaries, that's where the Spirit of God is working. When the church committee meets uh, to deliberate on the church affairs, that's where God is working. In our minds and our hearts, as, in, in, as the people of God whom God has placed together to reason together, that's where God is working. Working, It might not seem spiritual, but that's because of our false perspective that separates spiritual world from the normal world. God is with us in our normal world. And even in this passage, it seems to me that the reason why God does this miracle is because it would not have been clear to the Israelites even though it should have been, that if God uh, delivered the Israelites with 32,000 people, people would have mistaken that and said, I can do this. We did this with our might. Right? That's why God does that. God says, actually, I want there to be no mistake about this, that I am delivering you. That's why he takes all those people away and leaves them with 300 people whether it's through a doctor or through some sort of a miracle, God is the one who heals. As Christians, we must recognize that God is sovereign over the mundane. The the mundane things are filled with the spiritual things as well. That's where God is at. That's why I think wisdom is so important. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we're constantly encouraged to pray for wisdom. And when God gives us wisdom... It doesn't come in some sort of a spiritual, um, miraculous way. It will seem quite ordinary, but it will have been God's doing in all of it. But then you are asking, and I'm asking as well, where does the 
believing in God who does the impossible thing, where does that come in? What does it mean to be, believe and trust in that God, in that big God that does the impossible? Um, when Pastor Tim Keller um, planted the church, um, Redeemer Church in New York, he said that when he planted the church, what he prayed for was, God, please um, help me to um, plant a church that will survive in New York. But after many years of his ministry there, the church has grown. He's done great things. God has done great things through that church. And then he looks back at those years and he says he would never again want to, uh, want to dishonor God by having such little expectations, such low expectations. What does it mean for us to trust in that big God? God can do, God who can do the big things. And I think an easy answer might be that, well, when God tells us directly that God will do the impossible things, we have to trust in God who will do that. And that's true. God has spoken through Gideon directly and says, this is what I will do for you. Right? And Gideon had to trust um, God. But I think, I mean, that God does that in our lives as well. God sometimes tells us specifically that God will do this, do something. But I don't think that's the only way of thinking about it. In fact, I don't think that's the main way that we should be thinking about it because the way that God mainly speaks to us is through Scripture. The Scripture is God's Word. And as we listen and as, I, as we are sensitive to the scripture and what the scripture says, our minds have to change. What we expect need to change. And the questions that we ask ourselves have to change. And the Bible has given us a consistent pattern of what God is doing in this world and what God can do in this world as well. So, I think in this text, the text is not really teaching us is something possible, God? Is something, should we ask the question, is something possible or not possible? Because God has told us that God, God can do the impossible. But I think it's teaching us to ask a couple of different questions um, as we uh, live our lives. I think the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, when we come to that point of asking, what will God do for us? Or what will God do at this situation? The thing that we have to ask ourselves is, is this for God's glory? Glory. Will this glorify God? And this is why God has done this miracle. Because God wanted to glorify himself. God wanted to make sure that he gets the glory for this battle. And if we're honest, I think many times when we ask for God to do miracles in our lives, it's not for God's glory's sake. A lot of times it's for us. Because we would very much love to have whatever we're asking. So we ask God for healing. Sometimes. When, because, when, when uh, enduring uh, through illness in a godly way might glorify him even more. We ask God for us to get into um, a great school. When developing godly character might glorify him even more. We constantly ask, if you're a single people, a single person here, we constantly ask God to find us a good spouse for us. Neglecting the fact that God is constantly giving us opportunities as single people to do ministry, to glorify him in our singleness. Some might ask to walk on water, 
Not because God's glory is at stake, but because it would be really nice and cool if we could walk on water and God would, God would um, affirm our faith in this way. God wanted to make sure that he received the glory for saving the Israelites. And this is why Um, this is why God does the impossible, because um, God wants to glorify himself. So ask the question, will this actually glorify God? I think the second question that we might ask ourselves is, rather than asking, is this possible, is this not, not possible? Um, God has already told, told us that, it's, uh, that God can do the impossible. So um, what is necessary, what is needed in order to glorify God? I think that's another question that we could uh, ask ourselves. Uh, about two months ago, the committee was meeting, um, long meeting, whether to decide to buy a Shatin Community Church Center or not. And so committee and I, well, um, more I, I want to say myself, I was asking questions along the lines of, well, we're a church of about 200 people, adult members, and um, uh, uh, we have this much money in our bank account, and so therefore, what is possible for us to buy? What, what kind of property is possible for us to buy? Um, but one member of the church committee who is not here today, um, but uh, he, I know he has to work um, today, but uh, one a member of the church committee was frustrated with this question um, and, and said, surely we should not be asking ourselves what is possible and what is not possible, but what is necessary, what is necessary and what is needed in order to do the work that God has given as a church to do and ask that for God because God has already told us that God can do the impossible. What is necessary in order for us to do the ministry that God has given us to do? And I, uh, um, I heard that, and we sort of went on in our discussion. But that's the question that was on my mind um, constantly as I think about this. That's the right question, surely, to ask ourselves, isn't it? What is necessary in order for, uh, for God to do, uh, uh, for us to, to, to glorify him and further his kingdom as we think about um, uh, our important decisions in our lives. Because God has already told us that God will meet our needs. What is necessary in order to glorify him, God has already promised that he will meet those needs for us. And even if it seems impossible, we should be asking that from God. So, asking questions of, well, is this possible? Is this not possible? What is necessary in order to glorify God? Um, for, Gideon, uh, for Gideon and the Israelites, what they needed the most seemed impossible. Especially with the 300 people left. And that's the same for all of us, isn't it? Actually, if you ask yourself, what is really necessary in our lives in order for God to be glorified? It's not uh, entrance into a good school or health or money or respect or spouse. It's actually, in the very end, it's our salvation that is necessary. We need to be saved. 
We need to be in the right relationship with God. We need to be forgiven and accepted by God. That is what's necessary for us. But it's not within our grasp. It's impossible. By ourselves, it's impossible for us to reach God, to be in the right relationship with God, because our hearts have fallen so far short of God's glory, and we can't seem to escape the, the, our depraved hearts. And what we need the most is impossible for us to get. And remember what Jesus said um, to the rich young ruler as he sent him away how it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than the, for the, for the rich, young, rich, rich young man to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples asked themselves, well, then, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Jesus answers, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is possible with God because God has made a way to meet the need that we need the most. Because he came and he died. He bore our sins and he gives us his righteousness as a reward of his perfect life. And what God requires us, what God requires from us is to trust him, to believe in him, and to walk with him. Now, Gideon wasn't a perfect person. He had a lot of doubts, and he needed a lot of assurances, assurances, but he does walk in faith in the end, doesn't he? When he's told to send away uh, 22,700 uh, 20, yeah, 22, people, he does. He sends everybody away. When he's told to go into the enemy camp, he does. He goes. When he's told to go and fight with these 300 people with what seemingly is a ridiculous strategy, he does. He goes and blows the trumpet in the middle of the night. He does. He acts in faith. In the end, because of this God who can save us, all that we need to do then is put our trust in him. That's what he asks us to do so that we, be, we can be reckoned as righteous and experience the mighty salvation that he has achieve, achieved through his son. And I pray that as we go, that, God, that we will never dishonor God by having low expectations, that we will never dishonor God by not giving him the glory when he should be glorified in everything, in our mundane um, deliverances that we, we receive, and God's miraculous deliverances. And I pray that we will put our trust in God, whole, uh, 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 trust in God uh, wholeheartedly and give God glory in all things. Let's pray.